Hello, and welcome to Screaming in the Cloud with your host, cloud economist Corey Quinn. This weekly show features conversations with people doing interesting work in the world of cloud, thoughtful commentary on the state of the technical world, and ridiculous titles for which Corey refuses to apologize. This is Screaming in the Cloud. This week's episode of Screaming in the Cloud is generously sponsored by DigitalOcean. I would argue that every cloud platform out there biases for different things. Uh, some bias for having every feature you could possibly want offered as a managed service at varying degrees of maturity. Others bias for, hey, we heard there's some money to be made in the cloud space. Uh, can you give us some of it? DigitalOcean biases for neither. Uh, to me, they optimize for simplicity. I polled some friends of mine who are avid DigitalOcean supporters about why they're using it for various things, and they all said more or less the same thing. Other offerings have a bunch of shenanigans with root access and IP addresses, and DigitalOcean makes it all simple. In 60 seconds, you have root access to a Linux box with an IP. That's a direct quote, uh, albeit with profanity about other providers taken out. DigitalOcean also offers fixed price offerings. Uh, you always know what you're going to wind up paying this month, so you don't wind up having a minor heart issue when the bill comes in. Their services are also understandable without spending three months going to cloud school. You don't have to worry about going very deep to understand what you're doing. It's click button or make an API call, and you receive a cloud resource. They also include very understandable monitoring and alerting. And lastly, they're not exactly what I would call small time. Over 150,000 businesses are using them today. So go ahead and give them a try. Uh, visit do.co slash screaming, and they'll give you a free $100 credit to try it out. That's do.co slash screaming. Thanks again to DigitalOcean for their support of Screaming in the Cloud. Hello and welcome to Screaming in the Cloud. I'm Corey Quinn. Joining me today is Ben Kehoe, who's currently a cloud robotics research scientist at iRobot, in many circles better known as the Roomba company. Welcome to the show, Ben. Hi, glad to be here. So you've been involved in the AWS ecosystem for a fair bit of time. In fact, I believe a year or two ago, you were named an AWS community hero. That's right. What is that? So a community hero is, uh, it's a program that AWS has to recognize people who are contributing to the community around AWS. So expanding the understanding, the expertise, um, the engagement of, of people with AWS. And it's exciting to be, you know, I really like sort of facilitating people's understanding of AWS and their, their interactions with AWS and amplifying their voices so that AWS hears, you know, the masses more clearly. Gotcha. So did that come as an outgrowth of your work at iRobot? Did it come through your work on other projects? I mean, how, how did that, what does your phone just ring one day and, hi, it's Amazon. We've got this thing we'd like to talk you into doing. Yeah, it, well, it was pretty much that. And I think, um, you know, a lot of it came with, uh, you know, grew, the seed of it is the interaction uh, with AWS uh, at iRobot, where we transitioned our uh, robot fleet um, to use AWS IoT as our as our cloud connection mechanism, um, and grew out from that with you know my uh, my Twitter account um, and my interactions with them, uh, and my interactions with the rest of the community, both uh, you know other serverless users, um, especially 
and uh, just the broader Twitter community around AWS. Gotcha. So help me through this a little bit. You're effectively at this point known as a cloud slash serverless guy, which makes sense. But when I ran into you at reInvent last year, you convinced me to go ahead and buy a Roomba. I did this as a favor to you. I figured I'd try it. It wouldn't work and I would return it quickly. Instead, it serves two purposes. One, my floor is far cleaner than it ever was before I had this thing. So it's become indispensable. And secondly, as an added bonus, it terrorizes my awful little dog every (laughs) time it starts with a little chime. She starts barking and invariably goes to the wrong part of the house because she's cute, not smart. So what I'm trying to understand is how do you go from being this cloud slash serverless guy to tying that back to the robot vacuum that I don't have to think about? Well, I, I, I'm first of all glad that you decided to purchase the Roomba. And you know, our CEO talks about, our CEO is a roboticist, um, and talks about having to learn you know, in the early 2000s to, to become a vacuum salesman. And I think that's true of a you know a lot of what we do at iRobot integrates a lot of different disciplines. And my my path to where I am today, which is really you know sort of while I do serverless cloud stuff is a big part of what I do. There's also robotics in there, and there's also like smart home IoT things in there. Um, so it's it's kind of a mishmash of a lot of stuff. But you know, in undergraduate, I was physics and math, and I worked as a theatrical carpenter. I worked for a big enterprise IT contractor for a while. And then I went to grad school for robotics. And I started out there doing unmanned aerial vehicles, which are a different kind of cloud robot. And then halfway through that, uh, the funding got cut. This is a thing that happens to grad students. Um, And I switched to starting to think about how could we leverage cloud computing to enable robots to do more and better things. Um, And then finished my PhD in 2014, Came to iRobot um, in the midst of a uh, you know transition period for our connected robot um, at the time, to and that helped transition into the into the sort of the AWS and serverless realm. Okay, which makes sense. Uh, but at credit to your salesmanship, you know a sucker when you see one. <laughs> so you sold me on one of the uh, top, the upper line of Roomba uh, devices, and that's great. The Roomba 980. Yep, that would be the one. However, Roomba's been around for 10 years. 15, actually. My apologies. Even better. So back in 2003, AWS wasn't a thing. So there's obviously been a series of, I guess, evolutionary steps as these things continue to evolve. What did they look like originally? And what, I guess, what do they do now that they didn't once upon a time? And how has AWS helped with that? Yeah, so there's a, there's a few different pieces. One is that, you know, when you look at a connected robot, you can get... Uh, telemetry back from it. And I mean, I don't know about you. Have you ever sent in one of those registration cards where they have a little survey about how you use your robot or any product? Yes, I have. You really have. You are like the first person I've ever met. Uh, at one point, they offered this raffle that I'm pretty sure didn't exist for some company. So I did that a couple of times oh, so you and are then realized. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Okay. Okay. Say something authoritatively, and I will do exactly what you tell me to do. Yeah. So most people are are not like that. Um, and so for a long time, you know, we know we've had passionate users who care about their robots and, you know, uh, we know that they lasted a long time, but we never knew how long. We never knew, you know, are people using them in the ways we expect? Are our batteries sized correctly for the size of people's houses? 
And when you start having a connected robot, you can start to get that information back and understand better how your users are interacting with your product and then make it better for them. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is, right, if you if you look at a Roomba, it doesn't have a screen on it, um, but you want to be able to program it to do the things you want to do, like schedule it, change settings about how it cleans, um, view the information that it's generating. And without a screen on the robot, you can't do that. Uh, setting a uh, schedule on one of the uh, non-connected robots is an exercise in like pushing a lot of combinations of like four different buttons. With a connected robot, you just open up your app and you're using that screen and you can have a nice experience right there. So these are the benefits that come with a connected robot. And we launched our first connected robot, the 980, in uh, 2015, and we're now connected through the whole line. The benefit of the high-end ones is that they also perform systematic navigation. So they use uh, robotics algorithms that allow it to tell where it's been and where it's going. And that helps it map out the space, which again, because you have that cloud connection, you can show that map to the user. Um, and we're now, you know, we've just announced a beta around showing you the uh, Wi-Fi signal strength that it sees as it moves around your house. So you can identify dead spots. All of that is enabled by uh, cloud connection. Wonderful. I'll even take it a step further. And I already made sure the one in this room was set on mute, but I, I very rarely play with the app anymore. I ignoring the schedule. I even will just yep. sometimes say, Alexa, uh, tell the Roomba to start cleaning. And that works. And a fun fact about that, this is one of my favorite pieces is, so we use AWS IoT to communicate from the cloud to the robot and vice versa. And the connection there is low enough latency that when you say that, the Roomba will start playing its little noises before Alexa even responds. Fascinating. So I, I just said that, well, granted, Alexa is on mute in my office, but the Roomba's sitting right next to me, and it did not start playing when I said that. That would have been hilarious if it had. But, yeah. So there is still that communication that has to happen, or is there more to it than that that I'm not seeing? Well, I, I'm saying, no, I'm saying that Alexa tells us that, that, that you want your Roomba to start. Ah, okay. And we're able to deliver that down to the robot faster than after we return, Alexa packages up its, you know, text to speech and delivers it down to Alexa and Alexa plays it back to you. And that's thanks to AWS IoT. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yes, it does start playing before Alexa starts responding to me. I, I was very confused for a second there. It's I, I understand that these are little robots, but I have trouble imagining the use case for putting microphones in it. You'd wind up with a combination of the vacuum noise itself yeah. and, as previously mentioned, my obnoxious barking dog Yep, who follows it around barking angrily. It's great. She weighs less than the Roomba does, which really is just – it's a wonderful experience for everyone involved. Yeah. So I guess you're based in Boston, correct? That's correct. Wonderful. So I feel like there's a opportunity there because I believe Boston Dynamics is also based there, which given the, given the name. That's true. So it seems like Boston is really shaping up to be the birthplace of the robot overlords of the future. Well, yeah. I mean, robotics happens primarily uh, in two centers in the U.S., Boston and the Bay Area. Um, and Boston Dynamics is here. Um, and they make very slick robots. I don't think you'll see them taking over the world anytime soon. They're very good mechanically, and they do, they, they're good at very specific things, which is true of all robots. They're good at very narrow use cases, and you put them outside of that, and they tend to fall over. Yes, I've had mixed results attempting to release the Roomba into the wild. Uh, experiments yeah. continue to be ongoing. Uh, so 
You mentioned AWS IoT a few minutes ago, and I historically have a background on the web app side of things. I can talk about EC2 until I'm blue in the face uh, for my sins, Mm -hmm. but I don't know much about what AWS's IoT offering is. In a nutshell, what is that? So AWS IoT is is actually a number of different pieces in one service. Um, The it's a, a pub sub system that delivers uh, messages over MQTT and WebSockets. And it's a rules engine that can take messages that are in that pub subsystem and deliver them out to Kinesis or Lambda or other web endpoints. There's some uh, asynchronous communication mechanisms and storage involved in there. And then it also involves authentication and authorization mechanisms for connecting devices to the internet. Because unlike all the rest of AWS services, you know, your device, your IoT device is probably not going to have the same kind of AWS credentials that, you know, even a, say, Cognito user might have. Okay. And then we, of course, yep. And that's, of course, just our connectivity layer. Behind that is where we build our all our application logic. And that, and AWS IoT itself is serverless, right? There are no... Uh, provisioning knobs to tweak on it, you pay for what you use. But then our application that sits behind it is also completely serverless. And I think we're we're up to 30 AWS services in production now. Like that's how many we that's how many AWS services we use to deliver our production applications. That's over a third of them. And given how far out into the woods some of those services yeah. are, that's almost impossible to wrap my head around. It, it keeps life interesting. No, and it's it's one of those things as well where if I take a step back and imagine when I was a kid what the future would look like, um, I might have said that there the robot – I would have predicted a robot uprising potentially, but I would never have guessed, for example, that I bet the robot uprising will have very clean floors. That It was one of those things where, oh, a robot and cleaning the floor was never something that made sense. I mean until I owned one of these, it sounded like a ridiculous thing for people with too much money. But it works. It's, it's one of the more astonishing uh, – and I say – pleasant uh, consumer experiences I've had, where it over-delivered above my expectations in virtually every regard. Well, thank you. Well, And that's no small feat. I tend to be relatively demanding and cynical as a personal failure mode. Oh, I was going to say, you know, we, we have some Easter eggs in our Alexa, in our Alexa skill, where you can ask, you know, you can ask Roomba to give the cat a ride, you know, in, in homage to Shark Cat, and you can ask... Uh, I'm forgetting the other ones. There's a, there's a there's a number of them. I wanted one of them to be Alexa ask Roomba to take over the world um and f- for the response to be I'm sorry I can't do that yet. But unfortunately that didn't make it into the final. That didn't make the final cut. Generally PR and legal tend to want to weigh in on things like that. <laughs> yeah. So one question I have for you is a a service that I think the world is taking relatively lightly, or at least ignoring it for the most part. And that is AWS Greengrass. For those listeners who aren't aware, that fundamentally acts as deploying Lambda runtimes to edge devices. And by edge, I mean out in the world, not at CloudFront Pops, where you effectively get a full Lambda runtime environment and it can do it can execute lambda functions in response to certain triggers on embedded devices. That's actually only half the story because the other half of Greengrass is a local MQTT broker that helps the communication between those lambdas on 
uh, on the device and between devices, as well as up to the cloud. So if you're using Greengrass with AWS IoT, Greengrass can manage your connection to AWS IoT sort of transparently to all the code that's running on your device. And it also enables you to, having that PubSub system locally also enables you to make all of the Lambda code that you're writing to run locally uh, run event-based. Okay. Is that something today that the Roombas are using themselves? You, For example, if I have three Roombas in my house, do they start communicating uh, between each other? Do they start... Uh, and is that powered by Greengrass, or is that not... So we don't use Greengrass. Okay. Um, Greengrass is an interesting... I think the real power of Greengrass is that it, it enables a company that has a lot of experience in cloud development to move on to devices uh, without a lot of the pain of learning uh, how to deal with devices. And iRobot doesn't have that problem. We know how to do devices. Um, it enables you know, uh, some firmware update use cases that are interesting, right? It helps you package up your code and send it down. It gives you that familiar code environment, that execution environment that you have cloud side, and you can reflect that on devices. Um, and then it helps, especially in cases where you have a gateway. So there's a notion of a green grass core, and that's a uh, that's the like MQTT broker that provides the the communication with the cloud. And then you can have multiple Greengrass devices that are talking with this core and sharing the communication mechanism between it. So that's sort of the master, the broker, that core device, which is helpful when you have that sort of star topology among multiple devices. If you look at uh, something like multiple robots in a home, you need each robot to be fully autonomous and operating in federation rather than as a uh, star topology. There's not one leader or gateway. And so Greengrass doesn't support that use case today as, as robustly as it does uh, some, of these other, uh, some of these other use cases. Got you. So to that end, uh, as mentioned, you were, you're a 15-year-old company. I'm assuming that- We are a 25-year-old company. Oh, my apologies. It took 10 years to get the robots shipping. It took 10, well, it took 10 years to figure out what- uh, what robots were going to make money. So uh, for the first 10 years of iRobot's uh, existence, produced a, a number of different robots from like space exploration to underwater to like oil well robots, like going down oil wells um, to like determine what's wrong with stuff. There's some like really creepy dolls um, that that got made. And then in 2001, uh, our defense business uh, produced the PackBot, which was our first, you know, broadly successful robot uh, for bomb disposal. Um, and so that made us some money. And then the Roomba came out in 2002, and then that was also successful. Um, and between them, that sort of powered the company for a long time as we explored other businesses and such. In the past couple of years, we've spun out the defense business and become exclusively focused on consumer. But in the history of iRobot, there's a, it's also, you know, just like my long and winding journey, uh, iRobot has taken a long and winding journey to the point we're at today. Okay. Back 15 years ago, when the vacuum robots started showing up, 
AWS wasn't a thing. I'm assuming that there was another cloud provider, there was a data center build out, or were the robots back then entirely self-contained? So uh, Roombas were not connected until 2015. Okay. And Roombas, you know, have always been, you know, so entirely self-contained. And so even today with the cloud connection, you know, if the cloud goes down, it's going to run on the schedule that you set it to. If, uh, you know, it's in the middle of a firmware update and you press the clean button, it ditches that and goes and cleans for you. So it's always going to have that uh, autonomy to serve the customer in the way that the customers expect. Now in that, you know, in the time that, 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 uh, iRobot has has been around. You know there are networked robots, and even you know we had uh, telepresence robots that used a cloud connection for that telepresence and you know remote driving capabilities. And so there's a lot of learning that we had around what happens when you give a robot a network connection. And then in you know the lead up to the launch in 2015, we started uh, developing that capability and taking that learning to to our Roomba products. In 2015, the landscape was slightly different than it is today, but I know that in 2018... It was brand new. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But here in 2018, if you're selecting a cloud provider, AWS is not necessarily a slam dunk anymore. There are a number of very competitive offerings from the other major players in this space. Did... You folks look seriously at other providers, or was it always a AWS was the clear winner? Uh, so this was uh, at launch of our first connected Roomba. Um, this story is also slightly complicated. Uh, at launch of our first connected Roomba, we had a full solution IoT cloud provider who, um, you know, sort of a turnkey solution that managed the communication, the firmware update, all of the pieces for us. Um, but it didn't it wasn't going to scale. We found that out. It wasn't going to scale to the volumes that we need because we sell a lot of robots. Um, and it didn't have the extensibility. So like doing an Alexa integration with it would have been very difficult. And so in 2015, we determined that we we're going to move off of them and went through a selection process uh, for that connectivity layer. And we landed there for with AWS IoT. And we also knew that we wanted to you know, start to own the application so that we would own the ex extensibility of it. And we knew we wanted to build that on AWS because in 2015 and even today, you know, the range of AWS offerings um, is, you know, gives them an advantage, um, whether it's bigger or smaller than it used to be as when, when we were looking at it. In 2015, Lambda was very new. Um, serverless itself was, was brand new. Um, the serverless framework was still called JAWS. And, but we decided in building this that it wasn't in our interest to have to build, learn to build, maintain, own, deploy server-based infrastructure for an elastic cloud IoT application to support the volumes of robots that we sell. And therefore, we decided to go all in on serverless and say we're going to build this around AWS IoT and AWS Lambda and pull in services and figure out how to make that work for us. And that's been enormously successful in both keeping our, you know, the size of our teams, the costs, the development time, all of that has been really benefited by deciding to go serverless. Right, and that's what I find interesting about 
iRobot's position on a lot of these things. I can envision the use case for IoT pretty easily. And conversely, on the serverless side of the spectrum, I can see using Lambda functions to do some processing. Uh, My uh, podcast and my newsletter both are powered by an obnoxious array of Lambda functions now. I can see using it to inject static headers into CloudFront because there is, in fact, no God. And we have to do that dynamically instead of statically like a reasonable CDN. I digress. But I still have a hard time wrapping my head around the use case of a serverless approach to what is effectively an incredibly smart vacuum cleaner. Can you distill that down a little bit? Sure. So um, if we're looking at processing when when a cleaning mission finishes, right? The robot sends up a, a little report through AWS IoT, and that goes into, you know, say a Kinesis stream with a Lambda reading from it. And when it gets that, it can, you know, store that in a place that the app can find and also dispatch a push notification to you if you've opted into those to tell you, hey, look, uh, your cleaning's done, right? And doing that means that we don't, in any of there, we're not using Kafka to to process those messages, um, we're not using, you know, even RDS to store those to store those uh, reports, um, and we definitely don't need uh, some, you know, auto scaling EC2 application to to read off and glue that logic together. You know, it's a lambda that contains basically just uh, AWS SDK calls dictating our business logic of of what we want to do with this piece of information. Okay, by having that on demand, there's an obvious economic win by not having a bunch of idle servers sitting around. Yep. Is there any other advantage that a serverless platform brings to the table? Oh yeah, so I mean there's the there's the direct cost of your AWS bill, um which depending on, you know, that that can go either way, right? You have idle capacity, but at the same time, if you have, if you, there are use cases where you can be highly optimized and use EC2 in a way that your bill would be lower than Lambda. Um, but the hidden cost is your operations burden. How many people do you need to uh, deploy and run this? And for us, um, you know, with the millions of robots we sell a year, we only need you know single-digit FTE uh, operations to manage that entire application that 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 handles all of the the data and functionality that our connected robots do, um, which would not be possible if we had a server-based architecture. We would need a lot more people to to make sure that everything was going smoothly and that uh, you know all of our servers were patched, et cetera. And then on top of that, right, uh, the development time becomes very low once you get good at it. Is because all the code you're writing is just the bits to glue your infrastructure together and the code that just says, I want this to move here and this other thing to move here, right? You're writing so little code and it's directly feature-based rather than you know, some uh, infrastructural notions that don't relate to what you're doing as a business. It means you can churn out those features very quickly. Which makes an awful lot of sense for a number of use cases. It's It's fascinating to me, not just the variety of use cases that Lambda and its brethren get put to, but how they these use cases tend to cross into so many different areas of technology and of different types of platforms that just would not have occurred to me until someone mentions, hey, this is this thing that we're doing. Oh, yeah. So looking a little bit to the future, 
Do you see that there is uh, – that list of 38 services, are you starting to play with any of the higher-level machine learning tools? Yeah, I mean, I think we're looking at uh, at – you know, whenever an AWS service release, the question is, oh, is it useful to us? Can we use it? And when you look at a service like SageMaker for for developing uh, machine learning models, it certainly is attractive in uh, reducing the overhead and the amount of infrastructure you need to own. I'm actually even interested, so you can bring your own SageMaker uh, includes a lot of functionality for machine learning algorithms, uh, for training machine learning algorithms. But you can also bring your own algorithm where you provide a Docker container, and then it will run that on all the data you input, which is a great general purpose processing tool. You don't actually need to be doing any machine learning to use SageMaker as a uh, bulk processing tool, especially when you look at um, its hyperparameter optimization. So if you need like to run something on a combinatoric piece, you can just use that. Um, to to help farm out all of the different things that you need to do. So in addition to looking at the, you know, sort of on-label uses of a given AWS service, we're always looking at, is there something else? Could we use it for another gap that we have where uh, we have a pain point and we could make this service, you know, bend it to our will to to perform this other task? Speaking of, a common concern that is raised by companies that are doing interesting things in this in the entire cloud space is often the idea of lock-in gets mm-hmm. uh, gets raised with your level of AWS services i get the sense that it almost doesn't matter what other cloud providers do or even what AWS does it feels to me based on the story that you've told that you're locked in to AWS uh, come hell or high water is that accurate and if so is that a concern so i think you know if you're looking at if you're looking at something like machine learning, you the the primary lock-in that you get with any cloud provider is data gravity. Um, and so if you consider running a given service uh, on one cloud provider and hooking it to a different service on another cloud provider, you're paying for the bandwidth cost to, to send the data between them and the latency. And I think that alone is a big obstacle to multi-cloud architectures being economically and functionally viable. Um, So I think it's more about making sure, you know, if you're evaluating, if you're looking at SageMaker versus some of the machine learning services that Google has, right, its suite of, of deep learning training, you can evaluate both, well, what's going to be, you know, in, in isolation, the best performing What's going to get me the best model? What's the easiest thing? Um, and then you look at, well, what's the cost going to be to hook this all together? And then you have to take, then you have to, you know, weigh those two things. I don't think there's, you know, I don't think anybody gets locked in as, you know, we should use it just because it's here, um, as opposed to what's the total cost of ownership of using something that's outside of your primary cloud vendor. At the same time, I don't think lock-in is so bad. The way that cloud pricing works between the you know the big cloud providers, it's much more public, and so it's it's subject to market pressures in a way that like enterprise software agreements in the past haven't been. And uh, your ability to get your data in and out is kind of up to you, right? You can store it in whatever format you want. You can make it portable. 
I think the uh, cloud events specification that's coming out of the Cloud Native Computing Foundation is going to help with interchange of information between cloud providers, which I think ameliorates the primary concern of cloud lock-in, which is these services only work with all these other services. Um, and so I'm not going to be able to, you know, if I'm using Kinesis, I can only use Lambda to process it. And with the the cloud event spec, you know, in theory, you'll be able to ship those off and run Azure Functions based on your Kinesis stream. In reality, I don't think anyone's actually going to do that, but it will make people sleep better at night. Because while, while I believe that the fact is that lock-in is not that big a deal, the fact that people worry about lock-in is itself a big deal and needs to be addressed. Does that make sense? Very much so. I've been accused at various times, in some cases by the same people, of being an AWS partisan to the point of being a fanboy, <laughs> whereas I've also been nominated for uh, the position of AWS community villain. So uh, there's yeah. sort of a spectrum on that. My, my approach has always been that once you pick a vendor, it's somewhat alarmist and unnecessary to avoid tying into the higher level functions. Yep. As long as you have a theorized exodus strategy, you're mostly fine. Now, that does mean that, for example, if you're building your entire application architecture around something like GCP Spanner, yep. which is a world-spanning ACID-compliant database, which, as far as I can tell, works on magic, that is a form of lock-in in the sense of if you have to leave GCP for some reason, there is no clear-cut strategy to get out of that environment. Yeah, at the same time, the the changing landscape around data governance means that these world-spanning databases, I think their utility is somewhat limited. But uh, I completely agree. And you look at the, the sort of alternative, which is, we'll build an abstraction layer over it, and then you could move to you know, Microsoft Cosmos DB um, which is a similar, you know, global uh, database. The problem with doing that, right, is that you lose the particular aspects of the individual services that uh, make them special and make them powerful. So I could make an abstraction for NoSQL databases that would allow you to use DynamoDB or Google's Cloud NoSQL and Azure Document DB, but you wouldn't get to use global secondary indices, which are a really powerful feature of uh, DynamoDB. And so you're limited to like the least common denominator, which is not very good. And you're just hamstringing yourself for a contingency that nobody ever faces, right? So, you know, you never see people out there saying, you know, we went multi-cloud and it saved our butts. Um, or people saying we didn't go multi-cloud and, and it really bit us and we learned our lesson. You hear people talking about that they need to go multi-cloud and how to go multi-cloud, but the actual stories of you know uh, the evidence or the the concerns bearing out, I just don't see out there. I tend to have a somewhat different perspective in that I'm a consultant mm -hmm. that winds up in a lot of different shops doing things yeah. very differently. I do see multi-cloud uh, in a couple of scenarios. One where there was a decision made at the outset to keep everything uh, 
lowest common denominator, if you will. And as a result, all of the higher level services are more or less closed off to these shops. They tend to run on things that are available everywhere. Instances, load balancers, object storage, and a few other bits and bobs that generally tend to do a one-to-one mapping. The other scenario where I see it in is where there was a migration at one point, say from AWS to GCP or vice versa, and the original plan was to move everything, but it turns out a couple things are really hard to move for not a lot of benefit, so they plant a flag and it halfway through declare multi-cloud victory and then move on to things that actually move the needle on their business. I see more effort being placed in to doing a to preparing for a theoretical migration and maintaining an agnostic layer than I've ever seen into an actual migration because they generally don't happen and they're generally not world changing. That's exactly what I'm saying. I think we're I think we're agreed on that. Yeah. That that it's kind of like you know how there's there's a very good argument for why cow tipping is not possible. Right? People talk about, you know, teenage pranksters tipping cows and but there's no videos of it on youtube and therefore it's not possible and i find that to be very compelling right nobody's talking about it and so it's probably not happening there may be some companies out there that you know just don't want to talk about it and 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 succeeded but on the other hand people who do successful migrations like spotify um get trumpeted right they get Google's out there saying, look, Spotify moved from AWS to GCP, and it was absolutely great. So in those cases where where somebody actually succeeded or needed to do this, I think you would be hearing about people. It's a story that I think people want to exist, but I think you're right. In practice, it doesn't. The analogy I've always liked was it's astonishing how UFO sightings plunged right around the time that everyone started carrying a high-definition camera in their pocket. Same argument, right? <laughs> It's a strange and different world out there, and I think that companies are still trying to find their way. Historically, in data centers, it was a lot easier to be agnostic because you're buying utilities that have become commoditized. I don't care who my power vendor is. I don't care who my bandwidth provider is. If one of them displeases me, migrating is not that difficult, whereas in higher levels, it falls apart. Well, and if you're on Kubernetes, right, you can get Kubernetes on a lot of different places, and that makes you very portable. But the question is always, is that portability actually worth it versus going further down the serverless spectrum where you're using higher level services and doing less undifferentiated heavy lifting? Which also gets back to your uh, your point earlier of data gravity, where yep. it's, yes, you can save 20 cents an hour on a workload by having it done on a different provider, but that workload has to siphon in three terabytes of data from another provider. So you save 20 cents and spend uh, dozens of dollars to move the data where it needs to be. That tends to be an economic non-starter in many cases as well. Yeah. So- once again, you are Ben Kehoe. I'll put your Twitter handle into the show notes. Uh, where else can people go to learn more about you? About me? Well, uh, most of the talks that I give are posted on YouTube. You can search my name on YouTube and find me. I've got uh, some posts on Medium uh, under my Twitter handle that I write about where I think we're at in serverless and where I think we're going and what I think uh, we don't have yet is one of the big things that I like to, I like to talk about. Oh, being a futurist is a terrific business. If you're right, you're hailed as a visionary. If you're wrong, no one ever calls you on it. It's true. I complain less. I, I'm more, this is what we don't have today. And so however it turns out to be later is, you know, as long as it solves the problem, 
I'm happy. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, last question. What did you name your Roomba? What did I name my Roomba? Well, so I have a very small apartment, and I don't actually run a Roomba in it. Um, but I can share that the most popular name uh, is Rosie. Ah, the Jetsons reference. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this has been Screaming in the Cloud. This has been Ben Kehoe, and I'm your host, Corey Quinn. Thanks so much. This has been this week's episode of Screaming in the Cloud. You can also find more Corey at ScreamingInTheCloud.com or wherever fine snark is sold. 